0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Shelter Journey, a place where parents and caregivers of children with emotional, behavioral, developmental, and intellectual challenges can come anytime, anywhere, to feel less alone, less isolated in their journey. A place where their experiences are shared, acknowledged, and honored. This is also a place for people who may not be on this particular journey, but who want to learn, understand, and be more supportive of the people in their lives who are on this path. This episode of Shelter Journey is called PTSD. PTSD stands for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. There was a time when the term PTSD was primarily used when describing the flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, sensitivity to certain sounds, uncontrollable thoughts, and difficulty coping of those who had experienced war and warlike situations. Now, it seems that the use of the term has grown and is more regularly used when talking about people who have experienced or witnessed a variety of traumatic events, including combatant war, a natural or environmental disaster, abuse and assault, or a serious accident or injury. So, in essence, PTSD has to do with experiencing various forms of trauma. And let me add this caveat here before I go on. I am not a doctor or a psychotherapist. What I share here are my own thoughts, feelings, and experiences in relation to PTSD. Given what I understand PTSD to be, I've often wondered how it affects parents and caregivers of children living with special needs and challenges. Could we also experience PTSD-like symptoms due to past and ongoing events and situations that we live through with our children? If so, how does that PTSD manifest itself in our lives? How would we know when we are experiencing PTSD? What do we do about it? I live in New Jersey, close to the Garden State Parkway, which runs along the eastern side of the state from north to south. I am often on the parkway when driving to and from various work assignments. For the most part, it is a beautiful stretch of roadway without any commercial billboards packed with an assortment of red oak, maple, and other trees that I don't know the names of patches of purple, pink, and yellow wildflowers, and lush expanses of greenery. This beauty certainly helps distinguish New Jersey from the bad reputation it sometimes gets from the smelly fumes pumping out of factories and refineries along the turnpike near New York City. However, there is an exit on the Garden State Parkway that I absolutely dread. When I have an appointment that takes me on the parkway, I hope that it is before that exit, but oftentimes I have to go past it, and when I do, I feel as if something is stuck in my throat. I feel a weight in my chest, and a layer of depression settles in. Sometimes I try blasting upbeat music as I drive by to distract myself, or sometimes I just want silence. The feelings usually move on after I am several miles away from that exit, but the amount of energy it takes to get past the exit temporarily drags me under. These feelings started a few years ago when we had to place V, my youngest daughter, living with emotional and developmental challenges in a group home a short distance from that exit. She lived in the group home for about a year. I remember everything about that exit. How when you first get off, you have to accelerate across two lanes of merging traffic in order to reach the road that leads to the group home. The industrial feel of the town that eventually blends into a more suburban area. The street that runs just outside the home that is divided by a tree-lined median. And how, in order to get there, you have to overshoot the address, make a U-turn, and then double back and park on the street because the two white full-size cargo vans that transport the kids that live there are parked in the driveway. Placing V in a group home for children with behavioral and emotional challenges was one of the most difficult decisions my ex-husband and I had to make. But V's behavior and emotions had escalated to a point where she had become a danger to herself. Something as simple as going downstairs to start dinner caused anxiety because I worried about what could happen in the few minutes that I left her alone, what I might find when I went back upstairs and opened her bedroom door. There just wasn't the amount and level of vigilance needed to keep her safe within my home, and I didn't want to risk an unintentional slip up in surveillance that might ultimately result in a parent's worst nightmare. So, I spoke with V's psychiatric team, who originally made the suggestion and carefully weighed the pros and cons of V's placement outside my home, waited for the placement to be approved, visited group residences in the area, and found a place that we could live with. It wasn't perfect, because perfect was my home but it was the best that we had seen, and there was an available bed opening up within two days of our visit. I remember our first time there with V to see the place, walking up the pathway that led to the front door and stepping into the living room that divided the kitchen and downstairs offices from the children's bedrooms of the home the smell of freshly dried laundry being folded by one of the staff members who sat with a child that was having a bad day. I spoke to the subdued social worker who had kind eyes and a reassuring manner that comforted V and me. I remember the day we moved her in, using fun tack to hang posters on the walls on her side of the bedroom. One poster was the Beatles' Abbey Road album. Not sure how or why that one was there, because she never listened to the group, and I didn't think she was all that familiar with the Beatles. But we had that poster anyway and hung it up. Next to the posters, we created a collage of family photos with V in all of them. My ex-husband made sure she had her favorite stuffed animals. For some reason, the one I remember most was one of those yellow minion dolls from the movie with googly eyes behind round glasses and denim overalls. Unpacking her clothes that I had labeled with her initials the night before and placing them in the dresser that was assigned to her. Putting a rug down beside her twin bed that I bought at the last minute that morning from Target because I didn't want her feet to touch a cold floor in the mornings. We did everything to make her side of the room look and feel like home. It comforted us more than her, I think. Throughout the drop-off process, I kept thinking about how young V was. Could they keep her safe? Would she fit in? How long would she live there? When could we see her, talk to her? There was a two-week blackout period where we couldn't see or talk to V while she got adjusted to her new environment. What were the other children like at the home? What effect would they have on her and she on them? What if this home couldn't help us? Would we have to move her to a higher level of care? What if nothing or no one could help us? But despite everything, I still felt she was safest there. I kept assuring myself that there was no other way, no other decision to be made. At times I felt like a robot and just went through the motions because I could not let myself access the despair I felt because there was no place or time for it. That pain of leaving my youngest child in the care of strangers. Professionals, yes, but strangers nonetheless. That pain and trauma has never left me. The road to placing a child with special challenges in a residential setting is treacherous. But it is a common path faced by parents and caregivers. If we are lucky, we might find another parent or caregiver that has some experience with this kind of thing and be able to talk to them about it because it is an experience that has to be lived to be believed. V lived in the group home for about a year. Roughly 52 weeks, and I questioned our decision to place her in the group home every day of those 52 weeks. Although unsettling, a saving grace was that V was so lost in her mind at the time that she wasn't afraid of living in the home. And that, to some strange extent, gave us a bit of peace. Sometimes children live in these residences. For years, because they are just not behaviorally or psychologically ready to leave and need the 24-hour supervision and support. Sometimes children live in a residence, they are discharged and come home, and then have to go back again. Sometimes, despite the surveillance within these homes, children still figure out a way to run away and parents and caregivers wait in terror to hear what the outcome will be i didn't connect the feelings i experienced when driving past that exit of the garden state parkway to ptsd like symptoms until i spoke to other parents and caregivers who had experienced similar placements and i saw the anxiety fear disbelief and ultimately acceptance of what was happening and if By some psychological description, we as parents and caregivers who have placed our children in residential settings or had other trauma-filled experiences and situations with our children would not be seen as having PTSD. We certainly have paid the dues and met the criteria to be in that trauma-filled club. So, Will I do anything different when I drive past that exit on the Garden State Parkway next time? Will it ever get any easier? Wiser minds might suggest that I get off at that exit, find the nearest public parking lot, and just sit there and breathe. Maybe get a cup of coffee and walk around a bit. Although I am one to face my fears and challenges, for now, I'm going to pass on that. I'll drive past the exit, deal with the lump in my throat and grief that I feel, and keep going until it passes. If you would like to share your experiences as a parent or caregiver who has gone through PTSD-like symptoms as the result of a traumatic incident and feel comfortable sharing it, Feel free to write to me at shelterjourney at gmail.com. That's S H E L T E R E D J O U R N E Y at gmail.com. Your experiences and feedback will be held in the strictest of confidence. Your name or any other identifying information will not be used. This is and will continue to be a safe place for you. One thing that I have learned in doing the Sheltered Journey podcast in the few weeks since I started is just how quickly it evolves. Each time I sit down to write one episode, and sometimes I'm pretty far along in preparing it, a different episode pushes forward and demands to be told. For example, this week I had planned to write the blame game episode, and talk about the various ways that we blame ourselves for the challenges and situations that our children face. But instead, PTSD wanted to be front and center, and so it is. I thought that I would have a section in each podcast for things we as parents and caregivers would like to say, but didn't, couldn't, or wouldn't, But I'm finding that I'll need to be more flexible with that section of the podcast in order to leave room to cover other areas and issues that come up as the result of the emails, texts, and conversations I have with listeners. I try to keep the podcasts at a reasonable length, about 20 minutes or so, so they will be easy to fit into whatever schedule you have. So please bear with me as I show some flexibility with how the podcast is structured. There are moments in support groups for parents and caregivers of children living with emotional, behavioral, developmental, and intellectual challenges when there is recognition through the words spoken, or sometimes it's just a facial expression that provides comfort and reassurance in the most traumatic of times. It is my hope that the experiences I share with you through the Shelter Journey podcast provide you with that comfort, reassurance, and feeling that you are part of a community of people living through similar circumstances. Our children face different challenges, as do we, but the thread that binds us is the same. And while I can't see your faces... Hopefully, there is some feeling of relief and assurance that you are not in this alone. And if you are listening to this podcast in support of parents and caregivers that you know of or work with or part of your family, perhaps, it is my hope that with each podcast, your awareness of our issues, situations, feelings, and experiences are better understood and recognized. Finally, I want to tell you about a coping technique I saw a neighbor of mine doing recently. I was out walking the dog and looked across the street to see her gyrating in her car to the rhythmic thumping of R&B music. She got out of the car just as I was turning to head back home and told me that she had had a terrible online meeting and went to the car to listen to her favorite song to shake off the bad feelings that arose from the conflict. She said that she did this whenever she could because it put her in a better frame of mind. So, give it a try yourself. Think of your favorite upbeat music. I'd recommend Earth, Wind & Fire for its positivity, Shaka Khan for unbelievable funk, or ABBA. Yes, I'll admit I listen to ABBA and find that the song Dancing Queen lifts me out of the doldrums. If you're not in a car, stick some earbuds in and listen while you are walking, on the bus, or on a train. You might even duck into a bathroom, turn on your music, and dance for a few minutes. Thank you for listening to Sheltered Journey. Be well.